The early morning sky was releasing trickles of dampness as you roused yourself from your tent and stumble your way, still half asleep, over to the fire that one of your fellow soldiers was working to rekindle after it had burned down in the night. You're a long way from home and from civilization, marching through a rugged, broken country where creeks course through rocks and rugged ravines to get to this triangular piece of ground situated just a few feet above the wet prairie and bordered on two sides by woods and the creek. You look around and see the wagons and the main tents grouped in the middle of the triangle. No one slept well, it seems. Those who weren't serving sentry duty had been ordered to sleep with guns loaded and bayonets fixed. Your eyes had popped open every time you heard the slightest noise, and the woods had been full of them last night. Even with the sentries, just like everyone else, you knew that the enemy was only a mile away, meeting and listening to the prophet's rhetoric. You had grown up hearing stories of how the soldiers under St. Clair had been tomahawked as they lay wounded back in 91. Over 600 dead, including the women who were trailing along, and the ones who had survived had gone near mad running through the wilderness and were wearing but rags by the time they made their way back to civilization. You knew that if the Indians in Prophetstown wanted you and the rest of the governor's forces dead, they could fade in and out of the darkness of night at any point and take any one of you before you knew what was happening. You shiver, grip your rifle more firmly, and draw a little closer to the dying fire. Then you hear it. A shot rings through the camp. It came from the north part of the camp, where Barden and Geiger's men were. Your blood curdles when you hear an ear-splitting yell. The cry of an Indian. They're coming. Where do you go? The fires are still burning too bright to provide much of a shadow to seek shelter. Rifles are starting to go off everywhere around you. You can't see. You know they're there, but where are they? The glare from the rifle fire is blinding. If you could figure out where they've come from, you could fire. As it is, you're more likely to hit one of our guys. That would only make things worse. Where are they? Where are they? You can't die here in this miserable place, can you? Even worse, your mind wonders to what savage things may be done to you if they get you. You've got to fight back. You've got to try. You lift your rifle. You still can't hardly see what's ahead of you, but... Welcome, dear listener, to the American camp on the banks of the Tippecanoe and Wabash Rivers on the morning of November 7th, 1811. This time travel experience is this week's episode of the Harrison Podcast, and I am Jerry Landry, your host. To give credit where credit is due, the preceding narrative was compiled using quotes from Freeman Cleve's Old Tippecanoe and Walter Borman's book on the War of 1812. I'll post the full description on the blog so that you can see what were direct quotes in the passage. Before we return to the battle, I thought we'd take a few minutes to get up to speed on how we got here. As with all events of history, it didn't just miraculously happen. Numerous events and decisions got us to this point. Harrison by this time had been governor of the Indiana Territory for over a decade. As we mentioned in the last episode, negotiations with Native Americans had played a large role in his tenure of office, but increasingly, U.S.-British relations were having a creeping influence on affairs in the territory. Relations between the two nations had been rather tepid since the Revolution but we had managed to maintain good business relations up until the Chesapeake Leopard Affair of 1807. In a quick summation, a British ship, the HMS Leopard, boarded the USS Chesapeake off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, claiming that there were deserters from the British Navy aboard. 
they removed four crew members and tried them for desertion, in addition to killing three men and wounding 18, including the commander of the Chesapeake. Whether they were actually British deserters or not, we may never know. Though we think nowadays of there being a distinction between British and American accents, at the time, we sounded quite similar to our cousins across the pond, having been only recently made distinctly American. The British Navy exploited this to claim that American sailors were British and impressed them into serving Britain for free. It was a good deal for the British, but it's easy to understand why we Americans were rather teed off about it. Rather than declare war as some were clamoring for, President Jefferson formulated an alternate plan that he got Congress to sign off on called the Embargo, which was implemented through a series of acts. Basically, it ended all exports from the U.S. That's right. Jefferson hung up a closed-for-business sign on the Boston Harbor Lighthouse. His belief was that Britain and France needed raw materials from the U.S. more than we needed their finished goods, and that this might spur them to negotiate on various points of contention, including the impressment issue. As an added bonus, this might spur more domestic industry, since we likely wouldn't be getting finished goods from Europe for a bit, and we'd just go merrily right along. Well, that didn't work out so well especially in places like Boston and New York, whose economies depended on international trade. The economy tanked, civil unrest prompted the administration to mobilize the military to enforce the embargo, and the public was now calling for Jefferson's head. Signing the repeal of the Embargo Act just over a year after it had been put in place was one of Jefferson's final acts on the way out of the White House. You're probably asking how any of this has anything to do with the Battle of Tippecanoe. We're getting there, I promise. Relations with the British did not improve under the new president, James Madison, primarily because Madison had been Jefferson's Secretary of State and thus played an integral part in shaping the previous administration's foreign policy. Indeed, when Madison assumed the presidency, he was forced to abandon his first choice for Secretary of State and settle at the last minute on Robert Smith, seemingly with the intention of continuing to play a heavy role in the State Department in addition to his presidential duties. Between this and general dysfunction in Madison's cabinet, the negotiations to resolve various long-standing issues between the U.S. and Great Britain went nowhere, and relations deteriorated despite numerous false starts. Meanwhile, in the West, Harrison was continuing on with the Jeffersonian policy of negotiating with the Native Americans to acquire more land for settlement. However, discontent was developing with certain Indian leaders, the chief opponent of the policy being Tecumseh, who was beginning talks with the British about an alliance. Tecumseh was a Shawnee warrior who had fought in the Battle of Fallen Timbers against General Wayne and his aide-de-camp, William Henry Harrison, in 1794. He was born near modern-day Dayton, Ohio, in 1768, and had grown up in contact with the white settlers coming from the east. Despite earlier friendly contact, at some point, he and his younger brother set their sights on crafting an Indian confederacy to counter the power of the United States in encroaching on native-held lands in the west. Tecumseh's brother was named Tenskatawa, but is more popularly known as the Prophet. The Prophet had been better known by his tribe for being a drunken drifter before undergoing an epileptic trance, from which he came out and began preaching a revival of more traditional Shawnee theology, as well as revelations attributed to, quote, the Great Spirit, and conferred on him during his various solitary sojourns into the forest. He was said to have healing powers and worked in conjunction with his brother to urge resistance to the American intrusions. 
While his brother worked from the diplomatic and political angle, the prophet used his position as a revered religious leader to urge, quote, his followers to forego white man's dress, drink, cultivated foods, and customs. However, he did not stop there. In March 1806, the prophet led a group of Delawares on a witch hunt in which he identified certain individuals, including a war chief and a former chief, who were seen as being too friendly to the white settlers as witches and had them killed in various ways, including one avowed Native American Christian who was burned alive and another who was tomahawked and thrown, quote, half alive into the fire. Tensions were building on both sides. While Tecumseh and the Prophet were gathering allies, Harrison was pushing for strengthening the militia to prepare for the possibility of hostilities. After some less extensive updates in December 1806 to the militia law inherited from the Northwest Territory, the Chesapeake Leopard Affair prompted the Indiana Territorial Assembly to adopt the Militia Act of 1807 in September of that year based on the recommendations Harrison had outlined in an address the month prior. With exemptions given for certain civil and religious officials and an exclusion of African Americans, all other male citizens were made eligible for militia duty, and strict guidelines were established for their conduct while on duty. Harrison was authorized by the Act to call up the militia if Indiana or any neighboring state or territory was in the midst of, quote, an actual or threatened invasion. In four years' time, Harrison would exercise this authority. Before that time, though, Harrison and Tecumseh would hold a peaceful meeting in 1810 at Grouseland, Harrison's home in Vincennes, Indiana. Tecumseh's arrival is described by Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves as follows, quote, Tecumseh, arriving at Vincennes late that day, was escorted to Grouseland, where Harrison was sitting on the porch, reading and smoking. The governor arose to meet an unusually handsome chief. The color of Tecumseh's eyes, deep-set, has been described as hazel his nose somewhat aquiline, and he bore a cheerful, friendly air. The chief was neatly dressed in buckskin, his small arms, presents from the British, a tomahawk mounted in silver and a hunting knife in a neat leather case. Harrison stepped down, extended his hand, and offered the chief the hospitality of his home, but Tecumseh asked merely to pitch his tent under that elm tree. The conference quickly attracted the attention of the town's residents as territorial officials met with the Shawnee chief in the Walnut Grove. Tecumseh took the opportunity to at length express his anger and discontent with recent treaties negotiated with the Indians over the course of three days while Harrison sat and remained mostly silent. On the third day, though, the meeting became quite heated when, after Harrison responded to a comment, Tecumseh looked to his translator and said, quote, tell him he lies. The translator hesitated, and the Native American warriors who had accompanied Tecumseh took up their arms. As the territorial officials moved to react, Harrison stood with his sword drawn and called off his forces, while he warned Tecumseh that, quote, there would be no more such talk, and ended the meeting. Later that day, Tecumseh would apologize and attempt to more calmly lay out his grievances and to request that the boundary line for settlement remain what it was prior to the Fort Wayne treaties signed the year prior by various Indian chiefs, but not Tecumseh, warning that, quote, should you cross it, bad consequences. However, Harrison was not empowered to renegotiate the treaty, and the meeting ended without resolution. The next year would proceed with tensions building on both sides and with Harrison sending two men with a message for Tecumseh and the Prophet at Prophetstown, in which he warned that, as the white settlers, quote, 
have been alarmed at your proceedings. You threaten us with war. You invite all the tribes to the north and west to join against us. My warriors are preparing themselves, not to strike you, but to defend themselves and their women and children. You shall not surprise us as you expect to do. The two envoys were only able to escape Prophetstown free and unharmed by Tecumseh's escorting them out to their horses, as the council had ruled that they should be put in service to the prophet's wife and other women of the village. Tecumseh sent them back with a message that he intended to come to Vincennes again in order to parley with Harrison. However, with both men posturing and refusing to yield any ground, and both sides fearing the possible treachery of the other, no progress was made, and it became clear the conflict was likely to commence that year. Despite the urgings from the Madison administration in Washington that he preserve the peace as long as possible, Harrison used the leeway granted him both in his official orders from the government as well as the Territorial Militia Act to bring together a force to march into the frontier and build a fort on the Wabash River. He knew that this action would be provocative but felt that he had to make a show of force in order to prevent an attack on the civilian population. As can clearly be seen in this instance, the concept of a preemptive strike is not a 21st century invention. It was thus that Harrison and his men found their way to that campground on the morning of November 7th. The Native American forces were indeed waiting in the darkness, and after the first arrows flew at the sentries posted at the edge of the camp, Corporal Stephen Mars of Kentucky fired the first gunshot of the battle before running for safety. Harrison was putting on his boots in his tent when he heard the yells of the sentries as they ran back into camp. He called for his horse, a gray mare, but as his servant could not find her, Harrison borrowed another officer's black horse and headed towards the melee. This last-minute change is said to have saved Harrison's life, as Colonel Abraham Owen, riding with Harrison on a white horse, was shot and killed by an Indian who was on the lookout for Harrison on a light-colored horse. Harrison quickly told an aide who rode up on a gray mare to find another horse. The battle was not going well when a second Native American force attacked the beleaguered camp. Harrison, while riding around and trying to bring order to the chaos in his ranks, came across a young man named John Tipton and asked him, Where's your captain? To which Tipton replied, Dead, sir. Your first lieutenant? Dead, sir. Your second lieutenant? Dead, sir. Your ensign? Here, sir. His men began to express concern over Harrison's safety as one bullet struck his horse in the neck while another grazed the side of his head. One of the regular soldiers recalled of Harrison afterwards that, through the madness, quote, his voice was frequently heard and easily distinguished, giving orders in the same calm, cool, and collected manner which we had been used to on a drill or parade. Harrison was finally able to get his forces to form in standard lines, though he paid particular attention to, quote, the safety and conduct of the militia and to keeping their lines intact. Only losing two militiamen to desertion at the beginning of the battle, Harrison was ready to rally sufficient forces to at least start to hold the Indians at bay until daybreak. While the Native Americans tried to decide whether to press on with another strike at the Americans, Harrison organized his men and launched a counter-strike against the Indians, which caused them to retreat into a nearby marsh where Harrison's mounted forces could not pursue. The battle was over. Pierre Burton, writing about the War of 1812 from the Canadian perspective, wrote, quote, The Battle of Tippecanoe is not the glorious victory that Harrison, down through the years, will proclaim. It is not even a battle, more a minor skirmish, and indecisive, for Harrison, in spite of his claims, loses far more men than the Indians. 
Overblown in the history books, this brief fracas has two significant results. It is the chief means by which Harrison will propel himself into the White House, and, for the Indians, it will be the final incident that provokes them to follow Tecumseh to Canada, there to fight on the British side in the War of 1812. While Burton, despite his somewhat derisive tone, is factually correct, he does not account for one more point. As described by Robert Owens, after the Battle of Tippecanoe, the Native American warriors were, quote, no longer concentrated at Prophetstown. Though Owens does note that this led to increased attacks in settlements over a wider geographical area, one has to wonder what would have been the effect of a more organized Indian force in the Northwest, allied to the British, when war came in the next year. Indeed, after the Native American warriors retreat from the American camp, they returned to Prophetstown and confront the Prophet, who had told them that the attack would be a complete victory and that the white men would be harmless when, as a warrior described, quote, they fought like the devil. Their confidence in the Prophet was badly shaken by this turn of events. It would be a day before Harrison's scouts would make their way to spy on Prophetstown, but they found it deserted, except for the corpses of a few warriors and an old woman who had been, quote, left to die. Military historian John Elting, in his study of the War of 1812, disputed the common conception that the Battle of Tippecanoe was, quote, inconsequential, and instead credits Harrison for scattering an organized force and diminishing the prestige of both Tecumseh and the Prophet, all of which he felt was significant in altering the impact of Tecumseh's role in the coming conflict. Harrison, after receiving the report from his scouts, rode over personally with his aides and other forces to survey the village to make his own judgment on the aftermath of the battle and to find anything of value. He discovered, quote, an ample supply of the best British glaze powder and some fine imported rifles still in their wrappings. This proved to Harrison, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the forces of Prophetstown had been in league with the British. He rode out of town with this knowledge under his hat as the Indian village was burned to the ground. Next time, Harrison will take on the British to determine once and for all who would reign supreme in the West in an episode I'd like to call the Second American Revolution. This time, it's personal. Capitals ablaze, battles on the Great Lakes, and an invasion of the maple-loving lands to the north. It's sure to be quite an episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please feel free to contact me by email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. If you're not listening from here already, episodes are available on iTunes or Stitcher, or from our website at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. I'll be posting some supplementary multimedia, including maps and pictures, on there for this episode and the next, so please feel free to check it out. As always, thank you so much for listening. Take care, friends.